Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger with this week's message from Story Point Church. Matthew chapter 5. And as you're turning there, remember, if you've taken the 321 challenge, 321 challenge, we're praying for three people by name, the same three people by name every day that they might come to know Christ Jesus. Uh, the two is inviting uh, two folks to church each week. That's just a way of us uh, kind of setting the mark. Sometimes we invite more, sometimes we invite less. And then one time a week sharing God's story. Um, 321 challenge, we also have the the way that we're visually showing that right over here with the white, the orange, and the blue ping-pong balls. So Matthew chapter 5, um, I want to conclude my portion of the message today uh, on God's kindness, kindness in the age of cruelty. Next week, I'll go ahead and tell you, there is a guest that is going to be sharing his story. And he has the story of uh, having... Most people, anyways, thinking he has it all. Everything's good, everything's working, but inside his life is a mess. And he gets to the brink of disaster and then loses everything. He loses his, uh, his marriage, he loses his job, he loses his money, and he's living in a borrowed room not knowing if he'll be able to eat each day. And the thing that rescues him is the kindness of God. And he's going to share how his brokenness has turned into uh, true life. Amazing story. Um, he's a good friend of mine. Many of you may even know him, but I'm not going to tell you who it is. You'll just have to come next week to find out, okay? That's next week. Uh, Kevin is going to be out. Kevin and Leanna. In, uh, Leanna. <laughs> nope, not that Leanna. Uh, Kevin and Shannon, they're going to be on vacation, and uh, I'll be leading worship. And so we're doing some flip-flopping next week. But I think you'll enjoy what, uh, what this guest has to say. So Matthew chapter 5, you know this as the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. It happens to be the greatest message ever preached by anyone on the face of the planet. It is by far the most perfect sermon. It has every element. It is the model for preachers to follow. And the, the thing about this sermon is this. It was preached in a way that both attracted and repelled people. And the, the, the overall heartbeat of it was very simple. So it, it's, it's, it's a message that is the impossible or the seemingly impossible, but the very, very tangible at the same time. Um, and it's a message that will produce, if we, if we were to live this, or if we were to, f to get what this thing is saying, it will change everything. Now, now I often say that, that this might change everything. Um, but I say that always about the same specific uh, general idea. And that is, when you have a heart transformation in your life, your life changes. Because everything about you comes from the heart. The heart in the Old Testament and the New Testament is, is positioned as the center of a human. And it's not the thumper, it's not the thing that pumps blood, but it's the heart, the center of the emotions, the seat of the emotions, it's, it's who you are. And so if your heart changes, everything about you changes. And what I'm calling you to today, because the Scripture is calling you today to this, 
is a radical heart transformation, a metamorphosis to where you are no longer the same. Do you believe that that is what God can do in you? It is. But do you want God to do that in you? See, we say yes and we mean that, but we need to really step back and take a good look at what it's going to take in order for God to make this transformation. I don't doubt our yeses at all, but I do uh, say with, with a bit of fear and trembling, the cost of heart transformation is, is the same as the cost of having a heart transplant. It is traumatic for the body. It is traumatic for the family. It is costly. It is so very radical that everything in your life changes when you have a transformation of the heart. And so... The goal is for you and I to have a heart transformation, and out of that transformation, out of that metamorphosis, we become like Christ in every way. Dio Moody was a man who, in history, was extremely, um, uh, extremely well-known back in his day, um, but, but he was also one who was known even today as a man of great power and a, a man of great influence. D.L. Moody was nothing special when he started. He was a regular, just a regular shoe salesman. He was, he was a guy that, that just, just was living his life and God, God, had a, God, God had such a heart transformation in him that he, became from, he went from ordinary person to supernatural supernaturally gifted and anointed, so much so that when he entered into a room, the temperature of the room changed. And I'm telling you that today, that is what I want to be. That is what I want you to be. Room temperature changer. It's not an official title, but let's make it one. There's a story to this effect. Woodrow Wilson, our 28th president, was in a barbershop. He was sitting down in a chair getting his hair did, right? I say that because we used to have a, a person who worked with us, and she always came back. And she said, I got my hair did today. It's like, well, I can smell it. it. It has all that stuff sprayed on it. She, she would, you know, her hair would, would last a while. I don't think Woodrow was getting that. He was getting his cut at his barbershop, right? Y'all know who I'm talking about, don't you? <laughs> so um, he sat in the chair, and he, as the barber was working on his head, the door opened, and a man walked in. And as he tells, as Woodrow Wilson tells this story, he said the room atmosphere changed instantly at him stepping into the room. The man quietly came and sat down in the barber chair next to him, and the barber started working on his head. And out of this man's words were words that were gracious and kind. And everybody there felt it. It was, it was palpable. The man got his hair cut, got up and left, and, and uh, Woodrow Wilson said, I knew that in that moment, because of the, of, of the atmosphere, that I had just been in an evangelistic meeting of the great D.L. Moody. He walked in, and the best way I could say it is the anointing of God was so ever-present in his life that everybody around him felt it. Now, I don't know where you fall in line with this stuff, but I'm telling you this, that's the way I want to be. I want my life to be so close to the Father that when I walk into a room, the room changes. Not so that you'll remember my name, but so that you will know that God is alive and well in our lives. Amen? 
So how do we get that? How do we, how do we get to the point where God is so real and active in our life that we can walk into a room and things just change? And, and consequently, not everybody, not everybody does that, but everybody who follows Jesus can do that. How does that happen, though? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins the sermon. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, a, a few things about this first verse here. He saw the crowds, he saw the multitudes, and he wanted them to hear the message. But his message was to his disciples. Because what he was about to say was going to be foreign to the crowds. The multitudes would not be able to understand what Jesus was about to say. Why? Because what he was about to say was 180 degrees different than what everybody tends to believe. Because there's a system of, that seems, well, the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, right? But in the end it leads to what? Death. Now the system of man is counter the system of God. God's system is based on humility. It's based on love, it's based on servanthood, it's based on, on kindness. Man's system is based on self. I must get ahead and I must do whatever I have to do to get ahead. And Jesus said, look, the message I'm preaching to you is not what you're expecting. In fact, it is going to repel many of you, but those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Meaning, if you have a heart that it has the discernment of God's Spirit, uh, working inside of it, you'll be able to hear this and go, ah, that's what I want. The message was strange. And here's the thing. He went up on the mountainside and he sat down. This is important because he wasn't just giving his opinion. He wasn't just giving them some things to think about. He was taking a position of authority when he sat down. How do we know that? Because in these days, the Jewish scribes and the Pharisees, when they would walk along and the disciples would follow, they would talk and they would converse about life. That was seen as an informal OJT kind of thing, right? And, and so the words were important, and the words were things to think about and chew on, but they weren't things that you would necessarily go, oh, that's from God. But now when, the, when the, the, the teachers of the law would sit down, it was a way of saying, this is from God. It's the same thing that in the Catholic tradition, when the Pope sit, sits on, the, on, his, on his chair and speaks, it's ex cathedra from the throne, and they believe that as, they, as, as the Pope speaks that way, it's literally the words of God. I don't think that that's the case. That's another discussion, but that's the thought, right? When Jesus sat down, he was saying, I'm about to teach you words from God. So this is what God thinks. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. That word blessed means happy. Happy are those who mourn. That doesn't make sense. Happy are those who are peacemakers. Happy are those who were persecuted for righteousness. Happy are those who are meek. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Do you see how counter-cultural uh, this really is? 
Jesus is saying, if you want to live the life that is, that is the life I've called you to, you've got to have a change. There's a change in thinking, but that change of thinking is not enough. It's got to be a change of heart. And church, what God is calling you to and me to is to give Him total and complete reign in our life so that He can change our heart. Because when your heart is changed, nothing else is the same. I watched this, the story of Richard Warmbrown. You know him. He is the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. He was a, a pastor up in uh, uh, the, the Soviet bloc, up in those, those uh, areas. Um, I don't know, gosh, it must have been 40 years ago when this happened. Some, my timeline on this isn't exact. But, but he was arrested because as a pastor... Um, he spoke against the evils of, of what the government was doing. He was arrested and put in jail because he was a Christian. And in jail for 14 years, he was brutally beaten, brutally tortured. He was starved. He was sick. He was frail. And he was, he was left to die. And it wasn't except by the miracle of God that in the intervention of God through the prayers of His people that He was released. While He was in prison, His wife was also arrested and she was put into a labor work camp because she was a believer in Jesus. And the thing that is so clear about His life is this. When He would look at the guards who would beat Him, and, and when, he would, when He would be mocked and... and, and uh, and teased, and when he would be injured, not just physically, but by words, he would look at the guards and say, I cannot hate you. I cannot wish evil for you. I love you. And I want you to know the salvation that comes through Christ alone. And as he would do that, they would beat him harder. And he would say, I cannot hate you. I cannot wish bad on you, for I love you. How is it that a man being tortured could love his torturers? A transformation of heart. Something happened inside of him that caused him to not be able to hate, to not allow him to be bitter, to not allow him to, uh, uh, to want evil on his captors. And what had happened was a change of heart, a transformation. Now, the word metamorphosis is the word that we should use. There is a metamorphosis of the heart for all who follow Jesus. There should be anyways. Metamorphosis is the word that we use to describe what happens with a caterpillar. You have this ugly, nasty, furry, multi-legged thing. What was it an anthropod? What do they call those things? It's a bug. It's a worm. Right? And I mean, nobody looks, oh, how cute the caterpillar. Now, maybe a little child, but for the most part, a caterpillar is ugly. But that caterpillar goes into a cocoon, right? And there's this change. The change, metamorphosis, means there is such a radical transformation that what comes out of the cocoon looks nothing like what went into the cocoon. Church, do you hear what I'm saying to you? If you follow Jesus Christ, your life should look nothing like it looked when you first started following. 
That is not a hope. That is not a wish. That is a command of God. That is, that is what God says will happen when we follow Jesus Christ. He changes our heart. And because of the changed heart, our actions and our words are different. In verse 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. When there is a transformation, that transformation is into something that changes the temperature of the room. What I'm afraid happens too often is as followers of Jesus, we, we, we do the bare minimum to make sure that we're good with God, right? We get our fire insurance. Well, at least I'm not going to hell. And, and, and I'm, and I'm going to be mostly faithful to church and to the things of church, but... But, but those things we, we substitute for the real meaning of following Jesus. Listen, the acts of a religious person are a cheap substitute for the reality of following Jesus like He calls us to follow. The acts are a cheap substitute because the acts don't lead to transformation of the heart which, don't, which means if there's no transformation of the heart, there is no salt and light the way God calls us to be. Let me see if I can say it differently. So, what is salt? Salt is a, a mineral, right? Salt is necessary for you and me to live. We have to have salt in our body. If you are low on sodium, you're at risk of death. You have to have a certain amount in your body. Salt... Is, is, is a change agent. You cannot add salt without there being a noticeable difference. If you want proof of that, go to the hospital, become a patient, and let them serve you lunch. Right? That's not a slide against the hospital. They have a reason for it. But nobody says, you know, I'm going to go to the hospital to eat. I think I'll become a patient so the food will be better. No. The food is much worse as a patient because they do what? They leave the salt out of it. They leave all the goodness out of it. It's just food. Too many of us are living our lives as just food. We're just, we, we claim Christianity, we, we, we do the church thing, but we're just bland food. We don't impact the people around us. We don't walk into the room and the temperature changes. The reason for that is because we're trying to hold on to the world, to the life we had, and also stretch into the life that God promises. The Bible tells us in, in Joshua, it says, Choose you this day whom you will serve. For you cannot serve both. The New Testament says, Choose this day, for man cannot serve both God and mammon, money. Interesting that that's what he puts as the opposite of God. 
I think for most of us in our life, we wrestle between choosing God and choosing money. Now, I'm not going to suppose that on you, but hey, that's a reality of, of life, isn't it? Because the world is revolved around what? Right? And by the way, if you want to make money, um, being poor in spirit, being, being one who mourns, being meek, being uh, one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, being a peacemaker, that's not generally the way to do it. Would you agree? But guess what? God's smarter than all of us. If we follow what God says, then God blesses us in supernatural ways. Not always with money, but sometimes. I mean, after all, I'm chasing this little rabbit here. I hope it's okay. God's blessing of us is based on His purpose for us in His kingdom. Some of us, our purpose in His kingdom is to finance the kingdom. And some of us, our purpose is to, to teach. And some of us, our purpose is to serve. I mean, it, it, it's, this, it's this beautiful picture that God makes. But at the end of the day, the way we fulfill the purpose of God in our life is by doing, the way, doing it the way God says to do it. But we can't do it the way God says to do it. Here's the catch. Without a heart transformation. We try to do God-like things with flesh-like abilities. We're trying to do the supernatural in the natural. We're trying to, in, to influence our school or our workplace without realizing that we will not influence them in a supernatural way without a supernatural move of God inside of us. That is a transformation of the heart. It's a yielding to the Father. So what is salt? Salt is a change agent. Salt is a preservative you put salt on food and it, can, and it changes the flavor, but it also can preserve it. Salt is also a chlorinator. You, you, take, you take salt, you put it in a chlorine generator, and it produces enough chlorine where you don't have to dump chlorine into your pool, right? I mean, that's the power of salt. It's not a surprise that Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Then he said, you are the light of the world. Do you realize what he just put on your shoulders? He didn't really put it on your shoulders, but he said, this is who you are. You are the light of the world. Can you, can you pull the lights out for a minute? All the way off. <clears throat> so... There's a little bit of ambient light because of the screens. Oh, there we go. This is the world right here. And it's funny because we think that the world, every generation thinks that the world is as bad as it's ever been. In other words, every generation thinks that it's the worst it's ever been. But you know what? The world has always been in darkness. The Bible says that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. That was Jesus coming. What is darkness? Darkness is an absence of light. Let me prove it to you. In the 20s, how dark was it? In the 20s, you had strife and you had rebellion. You know, the, the, the days of the roaring 20s were... were uh, 
were not as glorious as we claimed them to be. What happened after the Roaring Twenties? The Great Depression. Tell me something. How could life have been so awesome and then a depression happen? Because there was an underlying amount of greed, of selfishness. And then you move into the 30s. And then you move into the 40s. What do we have then? World War I. The entire world was at war. Every nation rising against each other. And then World War II, the same thing. Because we didn't learn it in World War I. And then you pass through there into the 50s. How awesome were the 50s? Well, the 50s were, were just the beginning of the strife and struggle that we saw into the 60s. One of the things I've studied recently is Selma in 1965, Bloody Sunday. And then if you look at all the civil rights movement, listen folks, there was a lot going on in the civil rights. And what was going on was a lack of love for each other. That's the bottom line. And then you go into the 70s. You have all the illicit self, uh, drugs and the, the sexual revolution and all these kinds of... Then you go into the 80s. Folks, has it ever been anything but darkness? Yes or no? But guess what? Jesus said, The world is full of darkness, but you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Which do you like better, darkness or light? Did you see how light it got as more lights came on? Back in the 1940s, you had a certain group of people who were the light. And by now in 2020, many of them are, are no longer alive. So every generation has their own light. Every generation has their own salt. For this generation, for 2019, 2020, you are God's plan. Y'all with me? You are God's plan. He is going to move in our world through you. Here's the best part of it all. We think, man, these things are terribly fogged up. We think that what we have to do is figure out how to be used by God, and that's not the case. What we have to do is figure out how to stay close to God, and when we're close to God, the using part automatically happens. You don't have to figure out, how do I impact the room? You just have to be close to Jesus and then walk into the room. You don't have to have some sort of master plan of impacting the world. All you have to do is be close to the heart of God and then step into the world. And He will use you as salt and as light. That's good news. Why? Because all of your creativity and all of your, your desire is wrapped up into one single solitary thing. Do you know Jesus? And if you know Jesus... He transforms the heart, and you cannot help but be salt and light. How many people does God need to do this? Well, how many He needs and how many wants are totally different. All He needs, really He doesn't need any, but all He needs is one. 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 Just one. 
Just one, that's it. But guess what? I don't want just one. I want there to be light and 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 light. And you know what happens when we all have this transformation? God does something supernatural. And everybody knows it. What I'm preaching to you today sounds theoretical, but it's not. It's biblical. How else are you going to do in verse 43? You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. How are you going to do that without a transformation of the heart? You're not. I'm not going to love somebody who hurts me unless God transforms my heart. And then I can't do anything but love them. You want to change the world? Be kind. You want to be kind? Let God transform your heart because it will be a natural outflow of an inward reality. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we find this heart transformation? Heart transformation happens when we yield to the Spirit of God on a daily basis. It is the process and the reality of sanctification. Sanctification means God is changing you. He's sanctifying you. He's setting you apart. That happens both in points of time and in process. See, what, one of the things that I think we have problems with is we're wanting to impact, especially when we're young. Our, our, our youth gets this way. Everybody else, deal with it. That's not being mean. It's being holy. Because guess what? When you're living on God's timetable, everything else seems to change and work out. It really does. So you've got an audience of one, and that audience of one, here's what's going to happen. That audience of one is going to begin to transform the heart, and the only way to do that is through tearing down idols of the heart. Here's where the rubber meets the road. I think that I would be correct in saying that the reason that we don't walk into a room and change the room is not because God lacks power and it's not because God doesn't want or hasn't called us to be salt and light. It's because we have set up idols in our life that prevent the power of God from shining through us. The idols. So the way those idols fall is you say, God, you are my audience. Everything here is at your command. Everything here is on the chopping block. God, would you search my heart? Would you know my thoughts? Would you see if there's any wicked way in me? Destroy my idols and make me into your servant. Here's what's going to happen, folks. The thing you love the most is going to have to be put on the altar. That's what God did with Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm calling you to put 
the most important thing in your life on the altar. Now, I don't know what it is for you. It could be money. It could be position. It could be, it could be your, uh, your status. It could be your family. You know, people don't like to hear this, but we can elevate children in our lives so much that they become our idol. And anything good that becomes an idol becomes toxic. Toxic for us and toxic for them. If your child is your idol, if your job is your idol, if your, if your money is your idol, it actually becomes the thing that hurts you, not that helps you, and you hurt them. Amen? Is this true or not? Why? Because an idol is anything or anyone that's taken the position that only God can fill. But when you say to God, God, wash me, change me, move inside of me, transform my ugly, broken heart and make it whole, make it completely surrender to you, God says, are you sure? No, but yes. God says, okay, I'll be gentle. The story you're going to hear next week is the story of a broken man who felt the gentleness of God, not the condemnation of God. Here's what we need to understand. Our fear of God breaking down our idols is the fear that we would place upon a human father who is not a good father. Not, the, not, not an, a, 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 a godly father who loves us and whose gentleness and whose kindness moves in our life in such a way that it almost feels like we... Haven't even been to the doctor. I guess I can't really say it that way because any time an idol's broken, it feels like we've been to the doctor. Does that make sense? So the message today is this. Jesus sat down and He taught these words, the most perfect sermon ever, and what He chose to address was your heart and mine. It was almost like He was saying, if you will let me change and transform your heart, Everything in your life will fit. Everything. Because you will be who I've created you to be. There's no other way you can say, I'm not going to resist an evil person. Strike me on the cheek, I'll turn my other one. You want my tunic? I'll give you my cloak as well. You want me to walk one mile? I'll go two. There's no other way. No other way. So what is God calling us to do? God is calling us to yield to Him. Not just some. Not just kind of. To fully yield to his, to his power and to His love and to His grace in our life. To be transformed. The prayer that I pray, try to anyways, it's not an easy prayer sometimes. Lord, go through me and show me my sin. Show me my brokenness. Show me where I've offended You. Show me where I'm wrong. Show me where I need to change. Show me where I need to repent. And you know why I can pray that? Because I believe God wants relationship more than He wants judgment. Because He's a kind Father. So where does this hit you today? 
You know, by, by looking at your faces, I'm not really sure. And, and I say that meaning I, I really, I don't know if this is something you, sh- you, you desire or something that, well, it's, it's just another thing to add to the box. We're not talking about adding another thing. We're talking about complete, I've given myself to surrender to Jesus. Will you close your eyes and bow your head for just a moment? Let me just ask a few questions. One, who do you live for? Do you live for your family? Do you live for your work? Do you live for importance? Do you live for pleasure? Or do you live so that the glory of God will be displayed in your life? Do you live for Jesus? Second question. Do you know what your idols are? I imagine that right now, in many of your your minds, you knew exactly what they are because God has been telling you about it for a while. Can I just say, with all the kindness I can say, you can resist God all you want, but you're not going to find peace until you yield to Him. Some of you, there, there's a stronghold in your life. And that stronghold of sin just doesn't seem to be able to be broken. And you've been asking God, God, take it away, take it away, take it away. But God doesn't just miraculously take it away. A stronghold is something that you've invited in and it's something that you have to put to death. You don't do it on your own. You do it with God's power. But the scripture is very clear. It says put to death and then put on. The third question. When you walk into a room, does the room change? you this day whom you will serve. Choose you this day. Father, I pray that you would give us discernment today. Father, I pray that you would give us a glimpse of how good you are. Help us to see that you are a kind and gracious God. Help us to see that as your people, you've given us your name. Lord, I pray that today you would help us to truly yield to you. In this place, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior of your life, what that means is if you've never asked Jesus 
to forgive you of your sin, to make you right with God, I want to invite you to do that even right now. Just say to him, God, I know, I know that I'm broken, but I know that you love me. And I know that Jesus died in my place so that I could have life and relationship with you. I ask you to forgive me. And I give you my life. In Jesus' name. This morning, if you trust Jesus Christ, today's the first time you've done that, I want to invite you to make that known. Come and tell me or maybe put it on the card. This morning, if you're wrestling with, with some idol in your life, if you're wrestling with yielding to Christ, whatever it might be, I'm going to ask you to just do what He tells you to do. Will you stand? We're going to sing together. We're going to let God have His way. Like, oh, okay. Struggle, struggle. With it. Oh, okay. And then there reaches a point of maturity that you don't, you don't wrestle with those things anymore because you've grown up, right? Paul speaks to that. He says, look, you were young and I had to feed you milk and then now you're eating solid food. When, when God changes your heart, it's not necessarily that He changes it one time. He changes it over and over and over. So you become more sensitive to the things of God the longer you serve Him. And I tell you that to say... Those of you who are young in your faith may get frustrated because you're not seeing the move of God like you want to see. And so the tendency is for you to create and manufacture the move of God. But here's the thing. You don't have to produce anything. You just have to stay connected to Jesus because you are like bamboo. Okay? You take and you plant bamboo and you don't see anything for several years. Then all of a sudden it goes, boop, and just poof, right? There's this exponential growth. It's something like five or six or seven years when you plant bamboo before you see anything. You need to trust God's Word that says He is faithful, that God who, who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete that work. So if you are chasing Him, don't worry about the results because He's got to build you before He uses you the way that He wants to use you. Jesus didn't start really doing ministry till after He was about 30 years old. That didn't mean His life was wasted. It means that it wasn't quite time for Him to shine like God wanted Him and planned for Him to shine. Don't be unlike Jesus. Don't be in a rush. Don't be in a hurry. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. You just have to let God do what He wants to do. Amen? Amen? Just be patient. It's like kids. Kids don't get it until one day they go, Oh, I get it. It's frustrating. <laughs>